Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to episode one of the Culture Study Podcast. So this is just a reminder that you can get reminders for each week's episodes and show notes and prompts for our great discussion threads and a lot more by going to culturestudypod.substack.com. That's also where you can become a paid subscriber. It's a really tough world out there for podcasts right now, but subscribers like you make it possible for us to make this show as weird and nerdy and interesting as we want. And it pays, you know, for all of the editing and production, all of the stuff that goes into this show. If you'd rather just listen in your podcast app, that's amazing. Make sure to follow the pod so that you get new episodes in your feed. And it's also so helpful, like so helpful if you rate and review the show. All right, enough of that. Let's do episode two. I feel like a lot of people have written about infrastructure and a disproportionate number of them have been white men who live in North Carolina <laughs> and, um, you know, who just just don't see it in the same way. They don't sort of focus on it the same way as I yeah. do. So, yeah. So it's like, obviously, I think it's a thing that is of broad interest, but I think it's we have been trained to think of it as, oh, it's just the engineers, the technologists, you know, the city, city planners, the like anyone with yeah. a, like an MA in urban studies like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, like we're all we understand that it's political, yeah. too. Right. Like we're outraged when we hear about Flint. We say things like, well, those, you know, they're Americans. Like, how can they possibly be treated that way? So. <laughs> Um, so we totally understand that aspect of it, and it's just thinking about how to put those pieces together. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and this is the Culture Study Podcast. I'm Deb Chatra. I am a professor of engineering at a small engineering college outside Boston, and I am the author of How Infrastructure Works Inside the Systems That Shape Our World. Tell us about your new book. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's actually my only book. <laughs> The book is called How Infrastructure Works, and in the U.S., the subtitle is Inside the Systems That Shape Our World. And I'm really delighted to get a chance to talk about it here. So when I said we were doing an episode about infrastructure, and we already had this plan to have you on, but it wasn't like public that you were going to be the co-host, I'm not kidding you, like a dozen people either DM'd me or wrote into the questions to suggest that we have you on. So I just love that, like, that is so legible that, like, you are the person that culture study readers and listeners want to hear from when it comes to infrastructure. I mean, that is truly delightful. And and I think I know, <laughs> you know, a part of the reason why, and it really is because the sort of the familiar perspective on infrastructure is not one that really intersects yeah. with the culture study audience. Yeah. You know, if we think of it as like, oh, it's technological, or if we think about it, it's like, oh, it's for the nerds. And and of course, I don't believe that. And yeah. there's many ways in which I think it really speaks to um, the people who listen to Cultural Study. So the other thing that absolutely jumped out at me when I was beginning your book is the story that you use about Wiley e. Coyote to <laughs> illustrate the connection between infrastructure and what we take for granted and culture just broadly. So can you tell us that story? So the so the example I use is a sort of classic Wiley e. Coyote runs off a cliff, looks around, and only then does he fall. And and of course gravity is inevitable, but where we are as a society isn't. So we have built these systems that make our lives as we know them possible. And we also know that there's significant sort of costs to these systems. And the big one is that 
all of the energy that we use to make our daily lives possible, a significant fraction of that comes from fossil fuels. And we are starting to live with the impacts of putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. A secondary element is all of the actual stuff in our lives comes from somewhere, and we're dealing with the impact of that sort of extraction and, and disposal part. So Wiley Coyote looks around, realizes there's a problem, and then he falls. And the thing I say in the book, and I'm going to reiterate, yeah. is that we don't have to fall, right? There's nothing inevitable about what happens next. I think this is a really important point because I, we often, we've really been fed the narrative that climate change and the in, broadly the environmental depredation of our planet is a bad thing that is happening and our job is to stop that bad thing. But also it's like before it's too late. And I can't tell you how much I've sort of pushed back against that sort of catastrophic framing of how to think of the impact of climate change. There is no too late. Every step that we take to try to address and change these things will, in fact, have an impact, right? It's not an all or nothing proposition. It's not a do it now or never happens proposition. It's just going to be the work for a while, but the second thing that I really want to get across is that we really get this narrative of our job is to keep bad things from happening. And I actually mm. submit that that's actually no longer the case. The thing that has changed in the last few decades is that, and I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people kind of know this intellectually and we're still playing out the actual practical consequences of it, that if we now have the technology we do now have the technology to switch to renewable energy. And that kind of changes everything in the sense of we no longer have to accept the harms that come, the global harms that come with using fossil fuels, but we can keep all of the good things that energy makes possible in our lives, right? That we don't have to reduce our ability to do things in the world, but we do have to figure out how we're going to do it. And because yeah. most of the ways in which we use fossil fuels and most of the ways we use energy, and in fact, most of the ways we interact in the world, no matter how much it feels like we're doing it as individuals, we are doing it through our collective infrastructural systems. And that means if we're going to transform them, we need to learn how to transform them together. And I think to see these systems around us, and this is the part that I that I also really loved, as you said, that like, if culture is everything that is around us that we don't even really see on a daily basis, it's just like the way that we live, the things that we like, the how we navigate the world, like infrastructure is also that oftentimes until it fails. If you travel outside the US or even within the US or within North America, we see this, right? That that these are the systems that are the culture that we just do things this way and then we go somewhere else and it's like, holy crap, the plugs are different, right? That's the most, that's the most <laughs> co sort of common and familiar example. And How dare of, they, right? Instead of like, oh, it's totally random right. that Absolutely. plugs are the way that yeah, they are. Yeah, it's a local standard. <laughs> so it's just like any yeah. other cultural differences. We notice, we only, we largely notice our infrastructure um, when we go to different places. I also love in the book how you talk about how you became an infrastructure nerd. And so much of it as a kid was having some of those differences very visible to you by living in different places for longer periods of time. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So on one hand, I was sort of born into it in two different yeah. ways. So one, my <laughs> father worked for the local power utility from before when uh, I was born. Yeah. And uh, but the other thing is that I was born in Toronto right at the moment where they were doing the sort of 
um, intense investment into infrastructure in advance of a significant change to how immigration was handled. So my parents are part of that first wave of non-European immigration. And at the same time, there was building, you know, bringing nuclear power plants online, investing in highways and the like. So my parents emigrated from India to Canada. So my dad did his MBA in Canada and gen- before joining the power utility. And so like lots of immigrant kids, my family would spend summers in India. Um, and we ended up, in fact, living there for about six months when I was nine. So going from a place like Canada, where I have kind of full stack, you know, the electricity is just there all the time, the water is clean all the time, you really, really never have to think about it, to a growing city in India, where we pretty much expected that there would be brownouts every afternoon, right? That mm-hmm. that what everyone's, you know, it was it was a little bit early for air conditioners, so it was much more common for people to have evaporative coolers and fans. And but even that was enough of a draw on the power grid that um, everything would sort of brown out. We had running water, and this is true in many cities of the world. We only had running water for an hour a day in the morning and the evening. The quality of the water wasn't really high enough for kids with like Canadian immune systems. Yeah, <laughs> and so we definitely boiled and filtered our water—the water that came out of the tap before we drank it. And so it really made visible to me at a really young age that these systems existed at all, right? It's yeah. by seeing two different ones, it's why the contrast is what made them visible to me at all. And then then you can start getting into the, oh, it's really different in these two places. Why is it different? Yeah. My question to start the episode, we have a lot of other listener questions, but like part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show too is that I have become really fascinated with local infrastructure specifically since moving to this island because so many different parts like being off of the municipal systems has like made them visible and interesting in a way that they hadn't been before interesting frustrating all of the different things so we are a part of a water system neighborhood water systems which are they're all over the place (laughs) i just had no idea because i'd always been hooked up to you know like municipal water yeah and our neighborhood water system is really messed up like some of the pipes were just dug by 20 year olds building trenches like 50 years ago no one knows exactly where they are like you have a group of volunteers who is responsible for it it's wild it is so wild uh and then like we have a generator lots of people on the island have generators because we do lose power and then the most interesting thing though to me is the septic systems and you know, millions and millions and millions of people are on septic systems, which are kind of magical, like how they work and how they like they work with the ground and all of like everything. It's so interesting. But then they also are a huge liability. And like, to me, a really interesting way to think about the problem of privatized infrastructure. So I wonder if you could just talk about septic systems a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, actually, my colleague, um, Professor Allison Wood, is a civil engineer who actually did her PhD work on neighborhood scale septic. So we're sort of used to thinking of it as septic systems as either being individual and then once you have a sort of a critical mass of people with their individual systems, then it's time to go to municipal wastewater treatment. And she was investigating the sort of mid-range scale of septic systems that are neighborhood scale. It means that you can professionalize them, right? That it, it means that you can have someone who's responsible for them who can hold them to sort of a higher quality standard than you might be able to do by yourself, but as as a, uh, not necessarily as a stepping stone to municipal wastewater, but actually as an alternative to municipal wastewater. 
And so there's actually two sort of implicit ideas in there that I want to sort of pull out. So one is we have increasing standards for what we think is, is appropriate for us, right? Like what constitutes clean water and how we deal with our sewage has thankfully, right, even over the course of my lifetime, and I imagine yours, has gotten vastly improved. And so, you yeah. know, the EPA was founded right around when I was born. I live in Boston, which had famously dirty river, famously dirty harbor, but not really all that unusually so. And really, over the course of my lifetime, I've seen the water supplies around where I live get cleaner and cleaner, not in fact worse and worse, because of concerted efforts to make them better. And some of that is technological, and a huge chunk of that is actually just policy commitments to do that. So, yeah. you know, that subject question, it's it's kind of the microcosm version of this, is being able to say, like, oh, yeah, actually, we want to have higher standards, and we want to have those higher standards, it's challenging for people to do it as individuals. So we're going to, yep. we're going to work on it as a community. Yeah. But the second interesting thing that that eliminates is this idea of what I think of as sort of the scale of the problem. So we're, particularly in the US, we're really used to thinking of infrastructure as coming in two varieties. Either you're sort of homesteading, the sort of do-it-yourself, I have my grid, I have my septic system, I have my well, I provide for myself and my household. Or as is the case of like the vast majority of Americans get their water from only a handful of water supply systems because all the major cities, people do not get their water individually, right? If you live yeah. in any city, really, and certainly if you live in like New York or LA, that accounts for a significant fraction of the US population right there. So this sort of mesoscale neighborhood level infrastructure is a really interesting emergent idea. This idea of like, what can we do together as opposed to as individuals. So that's the sort of idea of neighborhood-scale septic. You know, there's a group in Massachusetts that's looking at neighborhood-scale geothermal. So instead of having a heat pump, it's really hard to put a heat pump in, but yeah. it actually works better to do it as a neighborhood. I'm sure oh. you've heard about microgrids, yep. right? That having having neighborhood energy generation and storage. There's local internet access, right? To creating small internet systems that then all of these systems can then connect into the larger system. So I think of it as we have kind of the do-it-yourself model and we have kind of like the large-scale model, but there really is a do-it-together mutual aid model, which as someone who lives in a place with a relatively small community that's not connected yeah. to the grid, I'm sure that is your world in yeah. a way that it's not mine because I live in the middle yeah. of a major city. Well, you know, I live in Washington State, which is very progressive in a lot of different ways in terms of trying to figure out some of these solutions moving forward. And some of them I actually don't think are unique to Washington State at all. I haven't looked around enough to know. But, like, the way that the county in particular provides grants for, like, regular pumping right. of septic systems. Or, like, we had to replace ours because it was an old, old steel septic. Probably the original. Like, whatever was put in when they got rid of the outhouse here right. in probably the 50s or 60s. Right. And we're close enough to the water that like you could never put in a septic system where we had like Look. that wouldn't, but we were grandfathered in and grandfathering like in my mind, sometimes I'm like, Oh, is that just like, I don't know, allowing people with various privileges to keep those privileges. And now I understand it as they would rather have people do it yeah. and get it done and take care of it instead of having the cost 
prohibition of like, oh, you need to like put in an entirely new system and pump your poop uphill in order to get it into that system. Like that would make it so they don't replace it. And then the field fails. And then there's all these long stickle effects. And so it's one of those cases where I see the government actually thinking in long term instead of short term. That is really heartening. But I don't know if most people really... um, Unless you've dealt with septic system <laughs> regulations or the county, you know, checking to make sure that you've had it inspected or pumped every two years, you don't know that that's happening. The same way that you don't know that regular maintenance of your um, the sewage treatment facility is happening. Right. Well, yeah, it's really easy to see the sort of penalties and the punishment and when things go badly, right? It's yeah. really yeah. hard to see all of the efforts made so that things go well until, of course, those efforts cease to happen or otherwise don't work out, right? So, yeah. And that's a really great example because it's this idea of figuring out what is needed by individuals or individual households that can be provided at that sort of state provision level that then protects all the people around that yeah. individual, yeah. right? That I mean, you know, the you don't have good septic for your own benefit, right? You have yeah. good septic for the benefit of everyone around you not having to deal with your poop. I mean, yes. you, you know, you not having to deal with it is, is sort of a side effect, but also you know, a it bonus. is yeah, but it is protecting the water supply. It is you know, yes. and and it's because we have an incredibly long history of that not being true. Yeah. Right? Yes. Exactly. So this is a great place to transition to listener questions. We had a ton about sidewalks. And I think that's because it's one of those things that like immediately comes to mind that is super visible, like sidewalks and roads when it comes to infrastructure. So we're going to play two questions back to back. Okay. The first is from Jennifer and our producer Melody is going to read it. Sidewalks. What makes them more walkable or less so? Why do cities not invest more in helping their residents and others walk safely and comfortably? And then we have this one from Kelly. My town is up in arms about sidewalks and who pays to maintain them. Just outside of town, the tax-averse municipality doesn't have any sidewalks, leaving kids walking on narrow shoulders home from school, families on the side of busy roads on the way to the park, and employees trudging over drainage ditches just to get to work. It's dangerous and disheartening. I'd love to know more about the history of sidewalks, where the money comes to maintain them, put them in, and how I might advocate to add more. All right. So where do we want to start here? Do you think maybe the history of sidewalks would be a good place to, to get into this? So I'm, I'm sure it is. And that is definitely not a thing that I feel like I'm at all an expert on. Um, <laughs> I know there's a new book by Henry Graber called, um, I want to say Pave Paradise, that oh. is about the issue of cars. Um, and how cities sort of got taken over for cars. But yeah. I do think there's there's sort of a, some broader ideas there, right? Then yeah. there's this idea of when you have things like this, who's benefiting, who's paying the costs, right? And yeah. who's being harmed? So that's kind of a, the first piece of it, right? That, And then the second piece of that is this idea of how do we see or how do we think about those benefits? And I think there's some really sort of deep human things here, right? I think there's humans are much better at loss aversion then we are at seeing the possibilities of new things. So, and, you know, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is, of course, famously progressive and um, has had an enormous amount of um, reshaping of the roads over the course of the last kind of five to 10 years and there's more planned. I'm unusual, I suspect, in that I am someone who commutes by car and by public transit and by bike pretty much every week. Yeah. And so I, that means I'm on, you know, I'm a pedestrian most of the time. I'm also like I drive, I work at a engineering college out in the suburbs. So I drive out there and, you know, I will happily bike 
around the city. And if I'm working, if I'm working at home, I'm often working not at home, but like at a library or elsewhere. And I'll like, so I've sort of seen this development, right? I've seen it from, from the point of view as a pedestrian and as a driver and as a cyclist. And I've sort of seen, even in a place like Cambridge, I've seen the sort of fights over it. And I yeah. think a chunk of it is that it is super easy to see what you're losing when yeah. you do this. And it's very, very hard to imagine what the benefits will be before they happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is all of those benefits, and in fact, many of the harms, are not things that we can easily put a dollar value on. It's like, how do you put, like I, like I too have walked in places that had no sidewalks and I've been walking at the side of the road because I'm used to walking places. And so, you know, I'll be out somewhere in the suburbs and it will not occur to me that there will not be sidewalks by the side of the road and that maybe I can't comfortably walk to where I'm going. It is impossible to put a dollar value on how dangerous, how disheartening it is to be trudging along the side of the road or crossing drainage dishes. And so we don't really have a very good vocabulary to talk about that and to make decisions around that. We kind of have one metric, which is like, mm. what is the economic cost of this or what is the economic benefit of this? Right. And we're, we haven't, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think this actually applies to infrastructure broadly, right? That most of the benefits of it, and in fact, many of the harms are not things that can be described in dollar terms. And we're, we're I feel like we are, learning or, or most likely relearning, sorry, the other way around, I'd say relearning because we built this infrastructure in the first place. But I think ultimately we are in fact learning the vocabulary for how do we articulate these benefits, these harms, and how do we negotiate with the people who live around us about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Yeah, it makes me sad that I think one of the the pieces of that vernacular now for communicating that is pedestrian deaths right. and and cyclist deaths right. um and that that is not like that's it's either <laughs> cost benefit analysis or it's taking those sorts of incredibly stark and tragic manifestations of the lack of safety that you that occurs when you don't have sidewalks or when you don't have good apparatus apparati for crossing the street right. what's the word for like um, like along um, a strip mall kind of area in a suburb where you have like four or six rows or like lanes and they're called like super roads or groads or something oh. like that. Like they're just like, yeah. There's a I, word I think for I know it. what you mean, but I, I <laughs> like, not. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know the term of art. <laughs> and like I'm you, sure. I find myself like when I would be going to some random place to report and I oftentimes go on a run in the morning and yeah. you're, you look at the little map and you're like, oh, I could go here. And then, <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah. You're, you're in the drainage ditch, right? Yeah. Or the other way that I could always tell almost like the politics of an area was when I would get to a crosswalk and is the crosswalk engineered so that it only shows the walk sign when someone presses the button right. Or is it engineered to actually move between the two, like acknowledging that there will always be pedestrians right. there? Yeah. Or is the pedestrian the exception to the rule? Well, and actually, the one I always really noticed is when you can only cross the street on like one side. So you yep. have to like cross over to the other side. And it's like, what the yeah. hell? Like everyone else is in a car. <laughs> like it doesn't cost them any time or energy. Right. But it costs me. I'm often, again, also out for a run. Right. It costs me time and energy to have to needlessly cross the street. 
in order yeah. like, to cross over it or to cross back or whatever and not to stay on my side of the road. Yeah, all of those things make it very, very clear to pedestrians mm-hmm. that you are, in fact, second class citizens on our shared roads, right, that we're all using. And, and even something, too, like I remember reading a big piece about curb cuts in right. New York City and how difficult they are for people who are in mobility devices, mm-hmm. but also for people who are pushing strollers. And but that they're there for parking, right? Like they're there so that people can pull in and then block the sidewalk. And they're just like, and it, it, the the preference is for the individual there. And so sometimes I think it gets to this like larger ethos, which is in some ways the contrast between like political ends of the spectrum, which is that like, do I care about things that don't benefit me personally, but but will benefit people who are not like me or people who are not related to me? Or do I only care about things that personally benefit me? Do I only want to fund things that will personally benefit me? Yeah, how do you think about that? I mean, so one of the things about infrastructure systems, so I, I, I mean, infrastructure means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but I really focused on, you know, my background's engineering. I really focused on these technological networks, right? So this is sort of classic utility, so transportation, as we've been talking, but also like water and electricity and telecommunications, right? These sort of, these sort of networks. So the thing about these as networks is that broadly, they're, they're, we use these to bring things to where we use them. So it could be information, it could be energy, it could be su- like food, it's like supplies, or it means we're moving, our, we're moving ourselves around, right? Transportation. The thing about this is that we, I mean, we all have bodies that exist somewhere on the planet, right? <laughs> and Which seems like a really dumb thing to say, but it is in fact true. And if we build out these networks then we are in a relationship to the people who live around us in these networks, whether we know them or not, whether we have anything in common with them or not. I mean, this is the sort of truth about living in a city is that you're in a relationship with everyone around you because of these infrastructural networks, because you have a body that is present in this city. Yes. So that's where the like, oh, you don't really care about other people. It's like, I'm sorry, but if you are in some, if you're on the same network, then you have something that you share in common with the people around you. And it's actually it's actually worse than that, right? It's not even just the people who live around you. It's these, I mean, these networks are essentially global now, right? So yeah. we can do things in some place that affects people that we may never meet on, you know, the other side of the country or on the other side of the planet. And we are in a relationship with those people. So, and I, you know, I think of, and actually I think of this as the idea of infrastructural citizenship, right? That we have, we have our passport that says where you're allowed to live, but ultimately we have this deep relationship with the people who share the land on which we're currently living today, but also into the future. And so we kind of don't get to say, well, I don't really care about these other people. It's like you're you're in a relationship with them, whether you like it or not. And I, you know, I always really like the idea of politics as what you get when you have a sustained relationship with people that you can't easily walk away from. Right, mm. that you have to decide how are you going to work together on things. It's not. It's not about you know political parties. It's not about voting. It really is. It's a sustained relationship. You can't easily leave, and that is really true of where you live or where you are. Right, that you don't get to get out of this relationship just because you decide you don't like your neighbors or because you want to try to live by yourself. You're on the same network. You're sharing the same space. This yeah. is this really is a challenge, right? It's to figure out how to work across any of those divides. Fortunately, broadly, people do actually 
I, you know, everyone says, oh, no one cares about infrastructure. Nobody really, you know, nobody likes the water. And I should, I think that is 100% not true. I think that. I, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. think everybody cares deeply about infrastructure. Many people really love infrastructure. And certainly, no matter where people sit on their, their sort of political divide, there is an understanding that infrastructure serves many of us well. And what we really want is to serve more of us better. I mean, if anyone tries to say that no one cares about infrastructure, I invite them to come to, like, any dinner like family gathering it's particularly here in the west where people talk about roundabouts right because there's more roundabouts now and those are a real problem okay this is a good segue into talking about cars right. which i think is another thing that people care a lot about and sometimes don't know how to extract themselves or how to like affect change in this larger system so this question comes from vivian how do we undo or evolve the car-dependent country we've built? I've been thinking about this for several reasons, both societal and personal. Kids unable to experience the gleeful independence of walking to the corner store to buy a juice or candy, and the mental health crisis this has contributed to in teens. My kids can, but millions cannot. There is literally nowhere they can walk safely. A culture in which pedestrians are blamed for their own deaths, a giant car arms race leading to ever deadlier collisions. A sedentary lifestyle that many cannot escape from. Lonely seniors who are too old to drive but have no access to public transit. The fact that a major reason parents take their kids to Disney World is because it's a place their kids can walk around safely. That, that is all these things. I, I feel it. And um, how in just to kind of get us started here. How car dependent is the United States comparative to other? Like, where are we on the spectrum? Are we the most car dependent? First of all, I don't know if we can, I want to talk about the United States as a whole, as like yeah. the most, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, so, I mean, I would say that the, I mean, this is, I, you know, I grew up outside the United States and I've spent time outside the country. And I always say that the U.S. is 50 different countries in a trench coat, which is a 100%. thing that's hard for. And actually, it's probably more than 50. I mean, if you like Eastern West Washington <laughs> yeah, and Western Washington yes. right, are not 100%. the same place. So uh, but in particular, you know, because of the sort of distribution. So like if you live in New York, if you live in New York City and you don't have a car and you never need a car versus large parts of the United States where that's not true. And that's true of other places, too. Right. That's not yes. specific to the U.S. Yeah. So they're, you know, it absolutely, I don't know, I don't know if it makes sense to say like we are the most car dependent country. Yeah. However, it is absolutely true. Two things are absolutely true. One is many of our cities can really only be navigated by car, right? That it's like significantly easier, faster, less expensive to get around by car. It, it might only be possible to get around by car than for, uh, than it is in other places. And that's particularly true when you think about um, intercity travel. Right. That yes. it's like very, very hard to get across the United States by without either driving or flying. Right. There's those are pretty much our options. There's not a lot of train. There's very little sort of public. Tra I mean, flying is mass transit. Right. It's just not public. It's privatized. Although, yeah. again, you know, we know that airlines um, are also support, you know, have been supported in various different ways. So I think many of us understand that we live in a society in a culture that is deeply dependent on cars. And I think many people have also realized that this was a choice, right? That this is not mm -hmm. a thing that happened naturally. It was an actual decision that was made by many of our forebears who decided that they wanted to live in a world where um, people had access to, in theory, their own private, 
you know, the freedom of having their private vehicle that they could leave when they want to leave, they could come home when they want to come home. Cars are actually kind of amazing for that. Yeah, yeah. The problem, of course, is when you sort of build everything around that. And one of the ways I think of it is that cars do not scale, that if you have more people closer together, cars just get worse. Right. As I mean, that's basically what traffic jams are. I sort of yeah, joke that I can yeah, get, yeah, yeah. I can go anywhere in my car at any moment, as long as the thing I do not want to do is go downtown into downtown Boston at rush hour. And <laughs> in which case, I will like just walk to the subway. And yeah. so, and that really gets across this idea that public transit scales as people get closer together. And we've sort of committed to one and not committed to the other. Mm-hmm. And in fact, have, you know, have, have uncommitted. People talk about this in LA. It's like, oh, LA had to, you know, had all these streetcars. That's true of many places, right? Because that yeah. was the only option to to move around before people. we had this sort of easy, widespread access to fossil fuels. But like, as Vivian noted, that ability to access that freedom that comes from having cars is by no means evenly distributed. And certainly, you know, every one of us if we're a driver, if we're like, I'm happy getting around in my car, at some point in our lives, that is going to become no longer true, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're all going to age, we're all going to lose our capacity. There's going to be a moment where we're going to be like, I cannot no longer drive safely. That is also yeah. true of everyone under the age of 16. That is also true of everyone who, for whatever reasons of sort of disability or sort of non-standard ability, cannot drive safely. We already know that this approach does not serve large swathes of our population. And in fact, as I said, if you feel like you're well-served by your car today, someday you will not be well-served by being expected to drive everywhere. Um, So then the question is, well, what, you know, what do we do about this, right? How do we start moving over? And I think that there really has been the sort of widespread awareness that this is a thing we want to change. And one really great piece about it is that, this isn't a an all-or-nothing proposition, and particularly because we have access to things like, you know, just-in-time transit. So I think about, like, public micro-mobility, like Los Angeles has been experimenting with sort of small-scale buses that don't necessarily have fixed routes, that are kind of halfway between a bus and an Uber, mm-hmm. which wouldn't have been possible before people had cell phones, right? There's, like, new possibilities for how we can create shared transit systems that didn't exist in the past. Having said that, like, I, I'm 100% in favor of, like, intercity rail transport. I like the idea of I'm just going to, like, sit on a train and look at the window or work and not actually have to pay attention to driving the entire yeah. time. I get to do something yeah. else. But the nature of networks is that they are connected, right? So it's like, if you can figure out how to make changes to your local environment, then that can happen kind of everywhere and all the time. And then those systems connect up. So it doesn't have to be like, we're going to have a giant, this is the new thing that's happening for a lot of it on the day-to-day level. Like that's, you know, that's the getting your kids to school piece of it. That's not the, like, how do we connect up cities across 3,000 miles of continent answer. But they're, you know, they're really closely related, right? So seeing the new possibilities and thinking about how do we build out these networks. Yeah, I see this in the Seattle light rail, which like, there was, I always wondered if there was ever going to be the political will to to actually do a light rail project after the disaster of the monorail project in the early 2000s. And I love it. I love it so much. Like it is so incredible to get down to the airport. If you're going to any sort of sporting game, like people actually use it. 
And the beautiful thing is that it keeps expanding <laughs> and it's going to keep expanding in so many different directions. And part of the reason they're able to muster that political will to do it is because it's working. Right. It's a virtuous circle. Yeah, it's not perfect. There still needs to be more. There needs to be a much better bus system that connects to it. Like, but you got it. Like, sometimes I, I think that there's a reticence to start somewhere, right? right? There's just this like, oh, we'll build it. No one will come like, and it's not going to like there's a defeatism almost right. instead of like, we got to start and then we'll keep going. And, you know, this is where I feel like I'm, I'm a giant nerd because I do feel like the data is really compelling that public transit in particular is a virtuous circle, right? Yeah. That if you build it, that people start using it and then it actually becomes because public transit does scale in a way that cars don't, right? The more people who use it, the better it works. And then you can like afford to invest more. You can have more like, you know, more add more routes. And even if it's just like, we're going to have more buses or even if we're going to have like mini buses, right? If you just start mm -hmm. somewhere, you can sort of get that flywheel going and, you know, some of us, you know, you're sort of describing direct experience with this. Certainly there's a huge amount of data on this, right, about how these systems work and that it really is a virtuous circle, right? It really is yeah. not, let's see if we can get the political will and we're going to build this. It's like you, if you just sort of get some traction and get going on it, public transit is a thing that is genuinely sort of appreciated to use, becomes increasingly valuable as more people use it. So our next question I am fascinated by. I had no idea this was happening. Uh, it's about rural infrastructure, and it comes from Caroline. I live in Vermont, and my local utility has started to give some customers uh, large Tesla home batteries as a way of preventing outages, which can be pretty common, um, particularly in more rural parts of the state. So people around here are pretty excited about this approach, and from what I can tell, it's relatively unique. Um, and I'm just curious about whether... This is a feasible um, way of dealing with outages in other parts of the country as well. I think of this as sort of like a resilience question, right? A climate resilience question um, in terms of like, okay, if this is something that we're going to have more of, we're going to have more power outages because you can only make a grid so sustainable to weather outages. What are we going to do so that people aren't in crisis? What do you think about this? So I actually think that's just one piece of it. Ah. The most kind of immediate piece of it is... We have these power lines, we get snowstorms, you know, at some point this year, you're going to have a power outage. And we know that if you have batteries, it'll help you weather that an outage. So natural disasters are different than extreme weather events, right? There are, it's become the natural disaster because it interacts with human, despite the name, because it interacts with human systems. And ah. most commonly, it's a natural, like what the severity of a natural disaster is that our basic infrastructural systems were disrupted and it's like, how long does it take for them to go back, come back up again, right? And it could be a snow day where you can't drive, but everything else is working just fine. Or it could be like you have a two week long blackout, right? Like in, mm -hmm. in the wake of, um, you know, in Hurricane Maria where some places didn't get power back for a year um, or even something like Hurricane Sandy, right? Where there's yeah. like every system was disrupted. So basically starting to say like, look, there's always going to be extreme weather events, but we're going to figure out how to make individual households resilient. So we'll we'll put batteries in. But there's actually more to it than that. So the thing about having batteries is I think of batteries in the house, batteries everywhere, really, critical batteries as buffers. That right now, we pretty much produce electricity on a sort of a moment by moment basis. That we know roughly how much energy, actually, we know often quite exactly how much energy is going to be used on one hand. And we have... Uh, natural gas or coal or other power plants 
And, you know, they really operate like a car, right? It's like if you need more power, you put your you put your foot on the accelerator, you put more fuel into it, you get more power out, and you can match these two things. Unfortunately, there is no equivalent of an accelerator for lots of forms of renewable energy for, yeah. you know, for like sunshine or wind. And of course, it is possible to have, there's a, I'm, I want to say Dunkelflaute, the German word for dark doldrums, right? When you have a cloudy and windless day. So neither your solar nor your wind generation is really working. So instead of trying to do this like hyper-optimized match demand and supply, we can instead build in, build in buffers, right? And so yeah. giving everyone batteries is essentially putting in a grid-scale energy storage network. You're building in resilience even on days that seem like perfectly fine days, right? Not emergencies, yeah. because it just means that you can smooth out the um, variation in supply so that everyone has access to energy that they need because there's a sort of built-in buffer. In fact, you can get even more clever if you've heard about things like the smart grid, you can use it to sort of, um, you know, if you know that a lot of people are going to use electricity in the afternoon, for example, on a hot day in the summer where everyone's running the air conditioners, you can use this battery storage to kind of arbitrage, like when are you generating energy and when are you storing it and when are you going to use it? So as these systems get smarter and the, they talk to each other and they talk to the utility, you can start doing all of the things that we sort of talked about doing when we have renewable energy, which is having a smart grid, really bringing to bear sensors and communication. And instead of having this sort of just-in-time grid, yeah, we can start doing having the system that works that makes renewable systems really work. So yes, the immediate thing is you will keep your power when there's a snowstorm. But the actual long term goal is we have a robust and reliable, fully renewable energy grid. I love this. <laughs> this is making me think about it so different. And it's so much better than my propane power generator, right? right? Like, yeah, like on many different levels. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that makes so much sense. And I hope that this really answers um, Caroline's question. So our next one is about infrastructure that you don't necessarily see or participate in directly. This is from Kira, and Melody's going to read it as well. Almost every wastewater treatment plant in the coastal United States is built near sea level. Most of them are aging, rusting, corroding. Is the United States going to systematically replace these plants? Or are we wading, literally, into a murky new era where we are going to need new landscape systems to clean wastewater? Well, so first of all, um, wastewater treatment, they are, of course, at sea level for a reason, which is that water and also waste flows downhill. And yeah. so it means that you, so I, I live in Boston where there's like a single giant plant called the Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant that's across the harbor, like across the channel from Boston Logan, which are both built out sort of in Boston Harbor. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, there are pumping stations, but broadly, you know, everything just, you know, if you flush the toilet or water goes down the drain, everything just gets carried downhill. So, yeah, they're typically built at the lowest point around, which is sea level. Um, whereas, of course, our clean water comes from the highest point around and then flows downhill. So it comes in New York City, it comes from up the Hudson River in um, San Francisco, it comes from the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in the Sierras and so forth. There's no getting around the fact that physical systems decay over time, right? So yeah. one way or another, we're going to have to do something to make sure that these stay up and running, right? And that means maintaining them, repairing them as they break down. Um, it means replacing them as they need to be replaced. It also, which is, I think Kira is alluding to here, 
um, because they're on, they tend to be at sea level. If sea level rise is going to become an issue where you live, figuring out how to harden them against storm surge, hurricanes, and so forth is going to be a big issue. There's no, there's really no getting around the fact, you know, I already alluded to the fact that because we tend to use energy through fossil fuels and through these shared systems and our infrastructural systems are powered, that means that they are the major way in which we as individuals contribute to climate change. They are also the systems that are going to be the most affected by climate change because they move things around the landscape, right? So whether yeah. it's, you know, electricity being brought to our houses or whether it's sewage being taken away from our houses, if the landscape in which they're embedded is changing, and in a future that looks very different, the next 100 years is going to look very different than the past 100 years, no matter what we do, no matter how well we sort of mitigate um, climate change at this point, that it means we're all going to need to figure out how to deal with that. And we're going to need to bake that in. So one of the things I also say is that if you live in North America, and particularly if you, I mean, if you live in the United States, if you live really anywhere in the developed North, like we... We are the richest civilization that has ever existed in human history, right? Like our history as a species. And no matter how you care to measure that, right? Whether it's money, and I personally think of it in terms of energy, not dollars, right? Yeah. Like in terms of what we can do, what we can do together, our sort of level of technological sophistication, our level of agency, our level, our ability to cooperate together. There is absolutely no reason why we cannot decide that we will build wastewater that works for us in 50 or 100 yes. years, right? That we can build electric. Now, you know, I do not remember this. I was too young. But like Jimmy Carter, during the height of the oil crisis, told everyone that you should turn your thermostat down and wear a sweater. And like, that's not the future, right? It used to no. be that if you wanted to have access to energy, it had to be through fossil fuels. That's not the case anymore. Yeah. So it really is the political question of how, you know, allocating the money that we have to things that are genuinely meaningful to all of us, like adequate wastewater treatment. <laughs> like, go I think that's, we have like air conditioners on the steering wheels of our cars. We have figured out how to do that. We could figure out how to update our wastewater treatment. Like, there's all of these like frivolous or like wonderful things about being an incredibly smart. Point, like we're at this point in our civilization where we can do so much right. and we just have to make sure that we include that in the so much. You know, there's that standing joke about like, oh, like we were promised jetpacks in the future. It's like we actually right. kind of have jetpacks, right? That's what electric cars are. They're like yeah. you as an individual have access to all of this energy to like go around and like move around and do stuff. It's also kind of weird and dangerous for yourself and for the people around you. Yeah. But like we we're really good at doing that at an individual level. But, you know, the future I was promised had trains, <laughs> right? Like I want yeah, jetpacks and trains. Yeah, like I, the future that I, I mean, I'll, you know, utopian vision of the future like people don't generally have jetpacks what they generally have is like public transport right yeah. and um so i want that future um for a bunch of reasons and we we you know we figured out a lot of the individual technological sophistication right like i think my iphone is amazing right i think that electric cars and like cars generally are kind of amazing but figuring out how to put the 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 emphasis on the other side right for yeah. these collective systems is the thing that we are not very practiced at. And I think a chunk of that is actually part of the reason why I wrote this book is to give ourselves some visibility into these systems as collective and as um, non-monetary, right? As as having 
value that is not economic as having harms that can't be measured in dollars. Okay, I think this is a great way for us to do our last question, which I think offers us, even though it's a little bit pessimistic, a way to be optimistic. This is from Claire, and Melody's going to read it. Is it the case that large-scale infrastructure is no longer politically viable to build? My partner and I were discussing this the other day, whether large works are somehow publicly unpalatable and politically infeasible. Are small or comparable investments in different communities necessary to move funding or projects along politically? So the first thing I'll say in response to this is that I am so thrilled that we have a large-scale infrastructure project that is about to start on our island, which is that we are getting an electric ferry to replace our ferry that is from 1962. And it's been a huge process that has involved the community in terms of like applying for the national grants that have a lot, and we have matching dollars from the county and all of this stuff. It's going to take a long time. It's really complicated because there's eelgrass and we have to replace some of the docks to put in the electric stuff. But like, I was in Norway a couple years ago. I saw these electric ferries. They feel like the future. It is going to be fantastic. And it is a huge large-scale infrastructure project that was made possible, not through individual politicians, but through community might. And so I wonder if that's maybe a way for us to start talking about this. And in fact, you actually alluded to applying for grants and getting sort of support, right? So I I really love, there's a developmental economist, Amartya Sen, who worked with pretty much the poorest communities on the planet, right? He worked um, in places like India. And he said that wealth is a way of providing us the freedom to live the kinds of lives that we have reason to value. And one of the reasons why I love that is because on a day-to-day basis, and this became extremely clear to all of us who stayed home during the pandemic, our freedom to live the kind of lives that we have reason to value does not, in fact, come from wealth. It actually comes from shared infrastructural systems, right, That, that make it possible to do something other than spend our time doing that. And so, you know, you really highlighted something there where the other key piece of this is the kind of lives that we have reason to value, right? There is no one size fits all answer to that solution. So you sort of describe this as we all got together, we understand like what needs to be done, we got some external funding, and that really highlights this idea that there doesn't have to be a single top-down approach, but it really is useful to basically say there is funding available, but we're not going to say this is how you need to use it. We're going to say you as a community can decide what you have reason to value. And then the all-purpose facilitator in, you know, sense term of wealth can then be allocated to you to make that possible. Doing this work well is never going to be easy, right? It is how do you balance not just the human actors who might have differing priorities, but how do you balance things like the natural effect? And you talked about the eelgrass and the sort of technological questions about the docks, right? How do you balance those types of externalities and harms? But the flip side is these, I, this really dumb, these are solvable problems, yeah. right? <laughs> A non-solvable problem is... Um, you know, do you have to violate the law of thermodynamics, right? And yeah. a solvable problem is you have to figure out how are you going to build this. So on the one hand, like even it, though it is politically challenging to do lots of things, especially big things, politics can change. Enough people can say we actually want to live in a different kind of world. That's how we live in a different kind of world, right? That's what politics means. That's how it happens. At no point is anything sort of taken for granted. At no point is anything a foregone conclusion. What is absurdly impossible today is 
our social norm tomorrow. And that's the thing that I think we're starting to see happen, right? I see that in the questions that people yeah. sent in. I see that when I look at different projects that are happening, right? And they're happening. We sort of live in the monolithic world where there's like, oh, we know we know what climate change is. We know like it's really hard to have cars. It's really hard to see all of these diffuse distributed changes that are happening everywhere that are about making this better world. But those networks, those people, those diffuse, you know, systems are growing and they're multiplying and they will connect together. Um, and then it will go from being impossible to being inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. That's the fairy felt impossible. And now it is inevitable. That is how I feel about it. So uh, this is a great place to end. This has been a fantastic conversation. All of your huge fans, I think, are going to be very excited. And also, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of new fans out there, too. If people want to find more from you on the internet, where can they find you? I have a newsletter called Metafoundry. I'm Debtra in various places. I think like a lot of people, my social media is highly transitional right now. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> and more than, you know, more than anything, there's, uh, I mean, how infrastructure works captures a lot of these ideas. I actually love that my friends describe it as like distill Deb, like cask strength Deb is what yep. one of my friends put it as. So, um, yep. you know, that's certainly a, the place to go for sort of deeper, deeper ideas in this. And, you know, the book really ends with what I think of as a set of heuristics for how to think about these changes. There's no algorithm, there's no checklist, there's no right answer, but certainly there are some principles. And so that's, I think, more than anything else, what I would encourage people to engage with. And I would say, if you liked this podcast, if someone listening likes this podcast, they will love the book. So please go check it out wherever you get your books. And thank you so much for, for hosting me. I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you and to talk to your listeners. If you're a paid subscriber, stick around because we're about to do the AAA segment, also known as Ask Anne Anything. And this is a paid subscriber benefit. It's really fun. And this week's question is an awkward friend question. Thank you so much for listening to the Culture Study Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have so many great episodes in the works, and I promise you don't want to miss any of them. We're getting ready to record an episode that is all about the Mean Girls trailer. Not about the movie, but the trailer for the new Mean Girls movie. We have some really good questions. There's a lot to talk about, but we need like one or two more. So if you go watch the trailer, or if you've seen it already, then go to the Google form and submit your questions so that we can answer them in this episode, which we're recording later this week. If you want to suggest a topic, ask a question about the culture that surrounds you, or submit a question to our subscriber-only Advice Time segment, check out the show notes for a link to our Substack. If you want to support the show and get bonus content, head to culturestudypod.substack.com. It's five bucks a month or $50 a year, and you'll get ad-free episodes, an exclusive advice time segment, weekly discussion threads for each episode, and a link to a special Google form so that your questions go to the front of the line. Plus, you get the knowledge that you're paying for the stuff that you love. The Culture Study Podcast is produced by me, Anne Helen Peterson, and Melody Rowell. Our music is by Poddington Bear. You can find me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, and you can find the show also on Instagram at Culture Study Pod. Just remember, everything, everything is interesting. <laughs>